You're listening to highlights of the Creative Processes interview with Michael S. Ross, president of Wesleyan University and author of The Student, A Short History. This podcast is supported by the Jan Mischalski Foundation. So I wrote this book and it was a lot of fun because I had to learn so much. It, it, it starts off with uh, an examination of three iconic teachers, Confucius, Socrates, and Jesus. And I look at the ways in which each of those teachers encouraged a certain kind of student. In con- the case of Confucius, the student as follower, someone who will take on the path that you've developed. In the case of Socrates, the student as critical interlocutor or critical conversation partner, someone who will, in dialogue with you, learn what they don't know, how to take things apart. And in the case of Jesus, the apostles I look at trying to imitate a way of life, to transform themselves, to strive towards being the kind of person that Jesus incarnated. And so that's the beginning of the book, these models of studenthood, if I could use that word, and being a teacher. And then I I look at the way in which these ideas reverberate in the West across a long period of time. So I'm interested in the idea of the student before there were really schools. Like, what, what did we expect young people to learn even when they weren't going to school? I'm interested in the idea of the apprentice I have a chapter where I look at this student as someone who is just learning a very specific thing. Like, I'm learning to make coffee cups, you know. I'm an apprentice for a cup maker. They don't really care about my spiritual health so much or my whole person education. I want to learn how to make a better coffee cup. And I look at some failed apprentices, actually, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Benjamin Franklin. I was interested in the ways women are treated as students versus men. So I write about that. And also how a category of human beings existed in the early modern period that couldn't be students. They weren't allowed to be students because if they were students, it would violate all the other rules about them. And those were enslaved peoples. When people are enslaved, they're denied the very possibility of learning. And so I I write about these philosophers who otherwise were quite astute, how they bent themselves into contortions to deny the possibility that enslaved Black people could learn, could be students. I've been president now for more than 15 years and We've created, I think, six new interdisciplinary colleges in that period. There were two when I started, and uh, they had been there for 50 years, but we've created a college of the environment, a college of film and the moving image, a college of education, college of integrated sciences, college of East Asian studies, and a college of design and engineering, the newest one. And I, I love these things because they bring different disciplines. You know, you have in the college of the environment, you can have a biologist, a dancer, an anthropologist, and an economist. And they're all worrying about a certain problem in environmental studies, but they come at it from different perspectives and they join together uh, in their work. That seems to me extremely exciting. The humanities has always encouraged this kind of messy inquiry. (laughs) Of course, you do need some skills, right? You you need language skills and you need sometimes quantitative analysis skills. You need all kinds of things to, to make progress. And that's why teams are so important. You don't have to have all the skills yourself, but you, if you're on a good team, somebody has quantitative skills and someone has language skills, someone knows how to read text, someone knows the history and politics. These are all great uh, adventures when you're with a team like that. And the humanities generally, I think today, they flourish when they remind students that through their study, we can pursue and create meaning. Because I think we are uh, creatures who still crave meaning and strive to create it or discover it, depending on the case. So the pressure these days, as you suggest, is that the student as someone who learns to think for themselves is confronted 
with tools of thinking, especially generative language models of artificial intelligence, tools of thinking that will do it all for you. And so what does it mean to be a student if what you learn to do is simply ask a machine better questions? Is that a step forward or a step backward in the idea of the student? I tend to think it's too early to know, but I do fear that it could be a step backward in the following sense that the tool can take over for us, our thinking. I, I tell my students in my class this semester that you, you, you don't want to outsource your thinking, but that's like outsourcing your humanity. But some of them do want to outsource their thinking because thinking is hard work, strenuous, and maybe you'd rather not do that. But to me, that's a great abdication of creativity and humanity. I don't think it has to be that way. I think we can actually use these tools just like we use calculators, let's say, or other shortcuts in thinking. And we will, for sure. I don't think there's any putting that genie back in the bottle. But I, I do worry that we now have this enormous temptation to stop thinking, to stop learning, and to just provide prompts to a machine that'll do it for us. You know, it's like the, the Garden of Eden story all over again. AI is that tree of knowledge. You can just take it. The strenuous work of growing up and thinking for yourself is no longer that important. But I fear if that happens, then we'll be in a situation of repetition, imitation, and we'll find ourselves in the position of enslaved peoples, unable to learn because the tool learns for us. I think shortcuts, they're very convenient, but convenience is not the only value. If it becomes the only value, I, I think we live in an impoverished world. I, I, I should say, though, that I think a, a really important feature of learning is to not lose the past. In other words, that it's not just about preparing for the future. It's also about remembrance and recollection and having some connection to the past. Not everybody feels that way, of course, and, and some people feel that way more strongly than others. But I think it would be a shame to lose our desire to connect to things that occurred before us. AI at the moment is very good at inventing past and inventing or hallucinating worlds that might be, but not necessarily did not necessarily happen. I think the effort to construct a past that you can live with is really an important feature of, of being human in the last couple of hundred years now. And what I mean by that is that, you know, even in like in a therapeutic encounter, you can imagine maybe this analogy works. You can imagine a therapeutic encounter where you say, uh, you know, every time I get close to someone, I panic and I, I can't work and I can't eat every time I get close to someone, especially when I like them. And then I say, oh, here's a prescription, take this pill and you won't panic. That's a tool. But many people say, well, I want to know why I'm doing this. Like, wh wh what about it? What is it about my life that has led me to, to panic anytime someone gets close to me? Well, some people say, I don't care what happened. Here's the prescription. This is a version of AI. Here's your prescription, take the pill and no more panic. You won't feel much desire, but you won't feel any panic either. Some people take that trade off. I, I think it's an enormous value in, in that questioning. Like, why do I feel this way? How did I come to be the person I am? And trying to answer that question rather than just getting the, the script to relieve, to take a shortcut. And so when I talk to my students about AI, I say, of course, you can use it you can, as long as you cite it. But what I worry about is they won't wrestle with the poem or the novel. They won't even have to read it. They just ask you, what is the novel about? That's a shortcut. 
what you deny yourself the pleasure and the this kind of deep emotional satisfaction that comes from wrestling with a, a work of art or a, a story. And of course, not everybody feels that way, but I think a lot of people do, and I would hate to lose that feeling. I, I don't covet more processing speed, actually, myself. I, I would like to have more time to dwell on something rather than to race through it. So I wish I had more time for contemplation, but I don't need a neural link for that. I just need to sit quietly a little bit more and to spend time with things. I was reading, you mentioned Emerson before, and I, I love reading Emerson because it takes time. You have to slow yourself down. And Lewis Hyde had a recent essay about Thoreau, a similarly intensive thinker that you have to adjust your expectations for change and stimuli when you read someone like Thoreau or like Jan Fossa. You have to pay attention differently and not just more quickly. And I'm very interested in that slowing down, I guess, rather than speeding up. I turn to people I trust and then to editors that I trust. Sometimes they disappoint me. In other words, I'll read something and I think it's badly edited or I find out it's not what I thought it was. But I, I think the world that sometimes people celebrate without gatekeepers is, is a hard world to live in because you don't get a filters that you trust. You just get the loudest noise or the, the one that has the most money behind it. I try to follow critics and writers and artists who I've come to trust enough to engage with. I don't have to totally trust them. We don't have to agree on everything for sure, but I trust them enough to engage with them. There's not enough hours in the day to do all that, but it's fun to try. I do love reading newspapers. I love reading book reviews because I can't read all the books I'd like to. So I spend a lot of time reading book reviews and essays about books. I ask my friends whose taste I respect about things to read. I just was in China last week, and so I had a lot of plane time. So I asked my friend Merve Emra, who's here at Wesleyan now and is a critic at The New Yorker, I said, I want to read Jan Fossa, who just won the Nobel Prize in Literature, and I wanted a shortcut because I hadn't read any. She said, you have to read Septology, which is the seven volumes. I had 25 hours on a plane. So I take my Kindle because I can't carry seven or 10 books. I always have to have a lot of books with me in case I get stuck somewhere. And it was an incredible joy, inc incredible, beautiful to immerse oneself in a book over many hours. And I felt I wouldn't mind going around the world again in a plane because I, I got to read all this stuff. I wrote this book, Safe Enough Spaces, because I do think it's important for students to develop resilience and to be able to deal with ideas that they find uncongenial and not just to expect to be protected from those ideas. Uh, I also think they should be protected from harassment and from intimidation, but not from offensiveness or inappropriateness or from disagreement. I have many students who come here expecting protection, but they quickly learn, most of the time, they quickly learn that protection is a very a dubious virtue, that it in infantilizes them and makes them weaker, actually, than they would be otherwise, and makes them more dependent on protectors. There's definitely a shift that occurs in the West from education is really giving you the ability to take your place in a society to education as being able to create your space in society. And so for most of human history in the West, the education was to show you where you would fit in. And you may have had a couple of options or not, but you were going to fit in. And you were educated in such a way as to enable that fitting. And in the modern period, that changes. It's less about fitting in 
then it is about opening a space for flourishing or for creativity or for freedom. And I spend a fair amount of time in the book on college students and those privileged folks who, you know, get to extend their formal education in ways that are supposed to open themselves up to a creativity transformation, and eventually participation in the system that creates their schools in the first place. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, please click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.